Well, good morning again, Coastal. If you have your Bibles, we're just going to jump in. Hebrews uh, chapter 1 is what we're going to be looking at. And if you don't have a Bible or if you don't own a Bible, uh, there should be one in the seat in front of you, um, and you can keep it. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, We are in week three of our Christmas series uh, that we're calling The Miracle of Christmas. And I enjoyed Pastor Sean's sermon uh, last week, uh, particularly when he emphasized Galatians. We looked at Galatians 4, and, uh, and he looked at Galatians, especially verse, verse 4 of that, that uh, when the Apostle Paul said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. And, uh, and we're going to kind of venture into that a, a little bit more uh, this morning. Um, and w- what we're doing is looking at what's called the miracle of the messenger. And if I could give this sermon title a different name, I would call this sermon the, the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. We live in a, a discontented age, don't we? <clears throat> and a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I talked about how, uh, especially around the holiday season, it, our, our anxieties, our depressions, our sufferings can be amplified, but this type of season can also amplify sins that reside in our hearts, uh, particularly unholy, just this unholy discontent uh, that, that, that for some of us drives our quarrels, it drives our fights, it drives our anger, all this external observable behavior that's really driven by um, the idols of our heart. Uh, and, uh, and it starts for us this time of year around Black Friday, right? Not really. Check just unmoderated consumerism that's driven by discontentment. There's loads of debt that's just driven by discontentment and, and with access to everyone's life on social media 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, it's, that's only amplified this, this discontentment that's, that already resides in our hearts. Uh, the reformer John Calvin, uh, he described our hearts as little idol factories, little idol factories. Think, think of there's this void that needs to be filled and we fill it with all of this junk. That's what we're trying to do as a discontented people. We're trying to fill a void. And for many of us, discontentment, uh, this filling of voids, it manifests itself in putting unrealistic expectations on people and on things. And I know this first and foremost because I'm a sinner. I'm a wretched sinner. And I know this because I counsel many of you, and you are wretched sinners as well. And for some of you women, you may have this unrealistic picture of how your husband should be or how they should act based on some, some distorted image that you, you have of how men should behave. You believe that, that if they would behave this way of your preference, that, that there would be uh, peace on earth or at least peace in your home, right? Or maybe that's not you. Right? Maybe you just want your husband to be godlier or some spiritual leader in your home, and this is a good desire. This is, this is a godly desire, but a lot of times what happens is these good and godly desires in our hearts, they get distorted and they get compounded with this unholy discontentment, and all of a sudden, your husband being the spiritual leader or being more godly becomes this demand, and you become bitter and you become angry. And you become naggy if, if those things don't happen in your home the way they should. For men, 
Many of you think that your wife should just respect and appreciate you more because you put in a good, hard day's work every day, and what you need is to be able to come home and set your feet up and veg out. Right? You deserve it. You're discontent. You're discontent. College students, right? you believe that, that your social justice issues that, that you care so much about or this image that you need to project of yourself, of being smart or caring or in the know on all things current events is this way to keep your head above water. You love your opinions. You love or you hate your image. You're discontent. And teenagers in middle school and high school, you think that if you could be more like your peers, you'd be peaceful, you'd be happy, you'd be accepted. What you so that, that changes what you, you try to find your identity in things other than Christ Jesus. You try to find your identity in what you wear and what you watch and what you listen to and how you speak and the things you do. You're discontent. Singles. You're, you're lonely. And you attempt to fill that loneliness with, with anything and everything. Overworked careers ungodly relationships, material possessions, you're discontent. Our local church has a problem, and I certainly could speak to the problems of the universal church, but I'm not a pastor at a universal church. I'm the pastor of this local church here, and our local church has a problem. And this is the problem. The problem is this. When I say that Jesus is supreme and sufficient for your life, it sounds like some tired-out old cliché. And when I say turn away from your idols and put your hope and your trust in the Lord who's worthy of your worship and your adoration, you think, you may not say, but you think, yeah, but you don't know my circumstance. And it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit more complex than that. There are other factors that you're not taking into consideration, and so you don't know my particular situation, and so that doesn't kind of like fit with what I'm doing in my life. We have an issue. We don't believe, at least practically, we don't believe that Jesus is supreme, Jesus is sufficient. And so I want to do something this morning. All right? I want to start off by saying to every single person in this room, including myself, we have to repent from sinful, worthless idols. We have to. All right, we talk about reaching the culture for the gospel all the time. The biggest way we're going to reach the culture for the gospel of Jesus Christ is by leading through our own repentance of idols. We have to lead through our own repentance of idols, and we have to look to our supreme and our sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. We're wasting time. We need to turn away from the direction that we're going in, and we need to turn back to Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I'm going to remind you of what you already know, but what many of you don't believe. So I want to do something that's a bit different. I'm going to have everybody in the room just go ahead and stand up with me. We're going to do the Dougie. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. <laughs> you got nervous when I said that. Oh. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray for God's Word to go forth. I'm going to pray for myself, for the Lord to soften my heart. I'm going to pray for your soul and your heart posture that the Lord would soften you, that God's Word would go forward so that we can really see Jesus. Coastal Community Church, this local church, is supreme and is sufficient above all things. 
And so I'm going to pray and then remain standing. I'm going to have you stay standing for the reading of our text this morning. And after I read our text, you can, you can have a seat. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to confess first and foremost, Lord, the areas in my life where I fail to see that Jesus is sufficient and superior, supreme above all things, God. And so, Lord, I confess that that manifests itself in so many different ways in my life, God. And and my desire is to repent this morning, God. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that are wrestling, that Jesus is sufficient, isn't tangible enough. It doesn't have the power behind it that it should. God, I ask that you would grant them the gift of repentance. so that they can enjoy fellowship with their Savior. So, Holy Spirit, help us. We, we desperately need your help. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by a Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for His sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You may be seated. If you're taking notes, first and foremost, what we need to see... The author of Hebrews is, is really getting at what Pastor Sean was getting at when he talked about the fullness of time last week, is that all of God's Word is all about Jesus. All of God's Word is all about Jesus. This entire book called the Bible, it has continuity. It has continuity. Actually, Christmas time, if we, if we step back and we begin to actually think about it, Christmas time is about celebrating the continuity of the Bible. Can it help your marriage? Yes. Can it help you be a better parent? Yes. Can it help you be a great grandparent or teenager or college student or young adult in the decisions that you need to make to please God? Yes. But it isn't about you. It isn't about you. It isn't about your marriage. It isn't about your decisions or your parenting primarily. This book is about the God-man, Jesus Christ. It's about how God's plan from the beginning was to send Jesus to make everything that's wrong in the world right. And God accomplished that through the life, the death, the bodily and eternally resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, who's ascended at the right hand of God the Father now. There's this book, this storybook Bible that we give out to your kids at times in in children's ministry. And many of you parents, if you're reading the Bible with your young children, this is a great little kind of synthesized Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Our kids are getting such better theology, and they're getting such a better biblical theology overview of the Bible than, than we are. We as adults, we're so messed up and convoluted. There's so many things that we need to untwine up here But our children, by God's grace, they're beginning more and more as we seek to be conformed more in the image of Christ and seek to be faithful, getting the the major narrative. But I wanted to read you a quote out of this, this, this children's Bible that we give out to your kids in the back. Listen to this. Now, some people think 
The, the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He's done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. All of the Bible is all about Jesus. Every bit of it. And so how exactly, because the author of Hebrews is concerned about this, how exactly do we see in the Bible that this one big story is all about Jesus Christ? The author of Hebrews, he breaks it down in two ways, if you're taking notes. First is this, God once spoke through prophets to fathers. God once spoke through prophets to fathers. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. One scholar puts it this way. He, speaking of God, spoke to Moses in the burning bush, to Elijah in a still small voice, to Isaiah in a vision in the temple, to Hosea in his family circumstances, and Amos in a basket of summer fruit. God at times conveyed his message through visions and dreams and angels and symbols and natural events. He appeared in various locations such as you are, Haran, Canaan, Egypt, and Babylon. Revelation from God was never monotonous activity that took place in the same way. God used variety, and this type of revelation has deep roots in the past. In other words, God isn't audibly speaking and revealing new revelation to us. He did that to our fathers through the prophets. Did that in the Old Testament, and really we could consider John the Baptist the last, if you will, prophet, the last Old Testament prophet. As God spoke to them audibly and in these various means, in these various ways, He revealed to them more and more revelation. It was as if there was this anticipatory revelation. We could think of it like a fan almost. And, and, and you have a graph that I'll, give, I'll draw attention to in a minute, not yet, but, but there was this anticipatory revelation that had to do with a Messiah that was to come. The Messiah that was to come. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, but I'm just going to give you just a, a, a taste of some of the Christmas passages that we go toward and celebrate this time of year. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7 the prophet Isaiah says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called, you guys know this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, he'll do this. Isaiah 53, 4 through 10, surely he, the prophet Isaiah, he's speaking of the Messiah to come. He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, by his wounds, were healed. Oh, we like sheep, we've gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. She'll see his offspring. She'll prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So God has spoken to our fathers. Think patriarchal fathers. He's spoken to them through prophets. And it's this anticipatory revelation. And you can look at your graph. We have it up on the screen if you want to put it up. But if we're thinking through in terms of Old Testament, we're thinking through how this is one cohesive book. In the Old Testament, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, and what he was promising was this covenant of grace, this one day when God, through Christ Jesus the Messiah, would make all things new. And the more and more he spoke, and and the revelation got clearer and clearer as time came on, as we got closer to the incarnation, what we're celebrating here at Christmas time, that picture just got clearer and clearer and clearer. And keep looking with me at our text, verse 2. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. If you're taking notes, in these last days, God, speak to us by, God speaks to us by His Son. Let me translate what that means. This means that Jesus is the conclusion of God's Word. Jesus is the conclusion of God's Word. In the Greek here, there's no definite article before the word son. What the author of Hebrews is emphasizing, emphasizing is Jesus' his, his essential and his sufficient nature. That's what's being emphasized here. There's, there's, there's no more need for revelation. We have Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. No more need for revelation. We have Christ Jesus. Opened up the sermon this morning talking about discontentment. And think about how that, that truth, how that relates to this discontented age, even inside the local church setting. We're always looking for a word from God, some, some new revelation. We have books written by people lying through their teeth, or at least they're very deceived about how they've died and gone to heaven and spent a few minutes there, and they've seen some weird colors, and they want to report back if only you'll pay $13 for their book. And we have so-called Christian publishers publishing that kind of nonsense, and you know what it's all screaming? We're not satisfied with Jesus Christ. We're not satisfied with God's final revelation to man. Jesus is the conclusion 
He's the pinnacle of God's Word. Jesus is above all. Jesus is sufficient. Everything that God needed to say to us, He's laid it out over the course of 66 books, and it all points to one person, Jesus Christ, our supreme and our sufficient Savior. And when you have people telling you that you need to add some additional stuff to know so that you can know more clearly or read or experience. And I'm not talking about commentaries and all that stuff. I'm talking about when you have people telling you that God has continued to speak and he spoke to them and he's gonna, they're going to relay God's messages to you, run far away because they're either really deceived or they're lying and they're getting ready to start up some type of cult. Look at chart number two with me. You flip it over. What do you got? We in the, in the New Testament here. God has spoken to us by his son. Speaking is done. We looked at Jesus. So this covenant of grace that was promised in the Old Testament, as the Lord spoke to our fathers through the prophets, he promised that one day a Messiah was going to come. He was going to be the propitiation for our sins is actually concluded in the New Testament. We see that it, it happens. It happens. Revelation's concluded in Jesus. The Bible, it tells one story, and there's nothing lacking in that true story. There's nothing lacking in our sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know what else that means? Not only can we be content with the closed canon of Scripture that culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but you can be content in your marriage You want me to tell you how theology intersects? Let me tell you how new revelation, people that claim they get new revelation from God, let me tell you what they do and how it intersects practically. I had a man look me in the eyes one day and tell me that God told him he could divorce his wife. You tell me theology doesn't matter. This guy delusionally thinks God's speaking to him and he had a right to divorce his wife, and he did divorce his wife. God isn't speaking to him. And God would never contradict his already concluded word. He's not adding an appendix saying, you know what, I didn't get it right the first time. Let me me come out with a newer, updated version. And we can be content with God's word. We can be content with who it is that God's word is talking about, which is Christ Jesus. We can be content in our marriage. We can be content in our singleness. We can be content in our our old age. We can be content in our poverty. We can be content in any present situation because Jesus Christ is sufficient. Jesus Christ is supreme. Secondly, if you're taking notes, Jesus is eternally God and created all things with the Father and Spirit. Jesus is eternally God and created all things with the Father and Spirit. This is verse 2b to the kind of first part of 3 here. It says, Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. I discussed this a bit a couple of weeks ago when we were doing the, singing the gospel service, but we're not actually celebrating the birth of Jesus. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to be a, a party pooper and say don't have birthday parties for Jesus. That's fine. That's fantastic. But we need to make sure that we know, and we need to make sure that we're communicating our kids that Jesus doesn't actually have a birthday. And he doesn't have, he doesn't have a beginning. Right? What we're actually celebrating, if we want to be crisper with 
with what we're teaching our children and what we're telling ourselves is that we're celebrating the incarnation of our eternal God. We're celebrating the incarnation of a person of the Trinity. Jesus never had a starting point. He never began. Let me explain just why that's so important. Ligonier Ministries, if you're familiar with it, it was started by the late R.C. Sproul, theologian, pastor, writer. Uh, They partnered with Lifeway, and they asked this question of evangelicals. Listen to this question very carefully. Is Jesus the first and greatest being created by God? When they received the results to that question, 63% of the evangelicals they polled agreed that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 63, does that shock anybody other than me? 63% of evangelicals. Folks, Jesus wasn't created by God. Right? The Holy Spirit wasn't created by God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. We serve a triune God. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they're coexistent. They're, they're co-eternal, and they're, they're, they will always be so. One God, three distinct persons. The Son who laid down His life for the church, right? The Father sent the Son. The Son laid down His life for the church. The Holy Spirit that regenerates your hearts and makes you a Christian is the same Jesus and the same Holy Spirit that was active in creation. They're the same Jesus and the same Holy Spirit that said amen to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There is continuity in the Scripture, and there's no beginning for Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We serve a triune God. Three, Jesus sovereignly upholds the universe. So, second part of verse 3 there, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is powerful. I asked in the first service, I said, do you believe that Jesus is powerful? And we had some kids on the front row, and they scream really loud, yes. And I'm like, this is who we need to follow. These are the best theologians in the church. Maybe something on to when Jesus is talking about faith like a child, right? They have the audacity to actually believe the stuff in the book God wrote. Preposterous is that. And Jesus is powerful. And not only is he powerful, but he's intimately involved in the world. That means that nothing happens in the world that doesn't pass through the hands of our sovereign Lord and Savior, Jesus. He's the the sustainer of our world. And, And no mortal man can thwart that, right? How arrogant are we to think that somehow we can knock the universe that Jesus upholds by the word of his power off of balance? The snow doesn't fall, the grass doesn't grow, the sun doesn't rise, the sun doesn't set, the rain doesn't shower, the earth doesn't flourish. We don't take a breath. Our hearts don't beat. We don't grow in wisdom and understanding. You don't sit in that seat apart from dropping dead, apart from the word of the Lord saying, keep living, keep listening, keep breathing, keep doing what you're doing. That's how intimately and intricately involved our Savior is with the world he created. Jesus, he upholds everything, everything by the word of his power. Jesus is all-powerful. There's no, there's no man and there's no demon in hell that can thwart that, that can, 
can knock that off of a balance. They could jeopardize that. So how does that animate you this morning, believer? How does that that impact the way that you think? How does that impact the way that you live your life? I'm afraid that, that the evangelical church lives like a bunch of deists. Right? We, we believe that all this stuff happened at some point. God set it all in motion, but it's up to us to kind of keep it going and to keep things moving. I'm not talking about good stewardship. Right? We, we, we're called to be good stewards as well. That's not the scope of my sermon this morning. But we don't serve some deistic, detached God. Paul dealt with that type of faulty mentality in Athens. And he said this, Paul standing in the midst of Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. It's like he's saying, well done, good job. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, to the deistic God, if, if you will. What therefore you worship is unknown. Let me let, me let you know who who it is that, that you think is unknown. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He's not actually far from each one of us. God is near, right? And then He goes on to say, In Him we live and we move and we have our being. That's an intimately involved God that we serve, right? Church, our triune God is near. And he's active. And that should, that should have an impact on the way that we live our lives. And that should rid our hearts of discontentment. That should wash over our marriages. It should wash over our relationships. It should, as, as, should wash over the passions at war within us that the Apostle James talks about. Our God is near to us and he's given us Christ Jesus. Fourth, you're taking notes. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection sufficiently made purification for the sins of God's people. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection sufficiently made purification for the sins of God's people. It's the next part of verse 3. After making purification for sins. I love that phrase, after making after making. That means, that means it's accomplished. Right? That means that, that means to bring to pass. That means that it's satisfied. Nothing is lacking. And I hope you hear me on this. Nothing is lacking in Christ's person and work. Not a thing. Not a thing. There's no sin that's too big. There's no road that's been too traveled that you're too far down on. There isn't a heart posture that's too hard that Christ's sufficient work can't purify. The incarnation was sufficient. The life of Jesus was sufficient. The death of Jesus was sufficient. The resurrection of Jesus was sufficient. The ascension of Jesus is sufficient. There can be nothing added to Christ's person and his work. So why 
do we labor and toil as an evangelical church so disconnected from Jesus Christ? Why are we so unsatisfied with Jesus? And finally, but vastly important here, Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. I'm going to translate that for you too. This means that Jesus owns everything and is presently ruling over everything. Jesus owns everything and he's presently ruling over everything. That's the the last part of verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'm so weary of Christians talking and thinking and acting as if Christ isn't presently ruling. If Christ's work is sufficient, if we all agree that Christ's work is sufficient, and we all agree when he said it is finished, he meant it, and we all agree that the Bible teaches that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus is ruling and he's reigning. And for us to live and to think and to speak as if he's not is really to hinder our ability to herald the Great Commission. It's quite a gloomy way, man. I don't know if Jesus owns everything and if he's ruling everything, but I need to tell you, he's quite the sufficient Savior. You should trust in him. We'll see how it plays out. It's how I feel like we kind of live and think sometimes, right? But Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Majesty, seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Psalm 110.1 says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy here in Psalm 110.1. You know how I know that? Flip with me to the end of Hebrews 1. Just look at it, Hebrews 1.13. The author of Hebrews, he says this, Into which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The answer is none. Because this is a prophecy fulfilled in our supreme and sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. The angels aren't seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ alone is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The angels aren't aren't being seated until they're waiting for their enemies to be made their footstool. Jesus is seated while God is making his enemies his footstool. And how is it, specifically, tangibly, how is it that God is making Christ's enemies his footstool? He's making it as we announce that Jesus is Lord to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Right? He's doing it when we announce that Jesus is Lord in our marriage. He, he's doing it when we announce that Jesus is Lord in our singleness. He's doing it when we announce that Jesus is Lord in our parenting. He's doing it when we announce that Jesus is Lord over those pestering sins that plague us. He's doing it when we announce that Jesus is Lord over our finances and over our call to be good stewards. And he's doing it when we cry out, Jesus Christ is Lord, supreme and sufficient over all the universe, and nothing will ever thwart that. God is making Christ's enemies his footstool, and when he does, you can rest assured that Christ will return 
And as John says in Revelation 21, right, as God in Christ makes all things new, and there's the, these new heavens and this new earth, and there's no more sin, there's no more sorrow, every tear is wiped away from our eyes. I long for that day. I long for that day. And so let's live presently longing for that day. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for how complete your word is and how your word's telling one story. And that story is about how our Savior Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And God, Jesus sought and saved the chief of sinners. So certainly he can save all us lesser sinners. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help our unbelief, soften our hearts, and help us to look to Christ. We thank you for this time we've had together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.